This is the Glasses by Day Geek by Night podcast, episode 7. I'm Matt, and today I'm going to be reviewing and moaning about some geeky stuff. On today's show, I have some geek news, including the Blue Beetle's domestic box office earnings and how it might affect the future of the character, Madden Web and All I Know, and Nick Fury's Harvest and why it might have helped create the Thunderbolts. I also am going to be taking a look at a late 90s gem, Roswell High. I'm going to give my opinion on Don't Worry Darling, I'll try and keep the spoilers to a minimum. I have a comic to read before you die, and a new character of the week. Geek News Blue Beetle has only earned $25.7 million on its domestic box office opening weekend. This is the lowest opening weekend for DC Movie in 2023. The Flash beat it, which isn't surprising, as the market of Flash was okay. And it, it, you know, it promised Michael Keaton's Batman... Sasha Calais, Supergirl, a few other things. But let's be honest, the market for Blue Beetle has been crap. It's been garbage. The only saving grace for the film is that, is, is that those who have bothered to go out and watch the movie, to watch it at the cinema, seem to have liked it. And they've given it a 96% audience tomato meter score on Rotten Tomatoes. To me, it still looks dead in the water. I don't see how that they can you know, claw it back. When by the looks of things they're going to make a loss. It had a $104 million budget from you know, from the off. Which is quite a bit less than previous DC movies. Such as Aquaman who had $205 million. Shazam Fury of the Gods had $125 Wonder Woman 1984 had $200 million, And they're just to name a few. So it's already quite a bit less on their, you know, their budget to begin with. And then... Altogether, up to now, it's only made $43.4 million since its premiere. That's domestic and international. So there's already a loss there anyway. So it has, by all accounts, been let down by marketing. And the fact that DC Cinematic Universe is really fickle at the moment, that they're rebooting things, they're getting rid, they're cutting their losses. So to be fair, I'm not sure if DC backed the wrong horse or if... You know, marketing is the issue. Why is something not being done about it? I just don't understand. So, by all accounts, the film is actually pretty good, and I probably will get to the pictures at some point to watch it. But in the meantime, I'll just moan about James, the universe killer gun, and his inability to give fans what they want. Madam Webb has cast Sydney Sweeney as Julia Carpenter. So Sweeney has been an extra in a plethora of TV shows and turned up in a few films such as Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. She is in the series Euphoria and looks to be on the up. She's playing Julia Carpenter, a.k.a. Spider-Woman, a.k.a. Arachne, or a.k.a. Madden Webb. So, Julia's been around since 1984 and has some decent storylines, which should hopefully lead to a good script and a better screen and better on-screen plots. I feel she'll probably make a decent Spider-Woman and hopefully add something new to the Spider-Man universe that we hopefully haven't seen before. We also have Isabella Merced playing Dora the Explorer, playing Anya Corazon, um, aka Spider Girl. So Spider Girl's a little bit different than the spider people that we know. So she has a spider tattoo rather than she was bit by a spider. So the spider tattoo gives her her powers. We also have Dakota Johnson playing Madam Web. So I find this one a little bit weird because my version of Madam Web is from the 90s TV show where she's just this old woman. And I kind of feel like a bit younger version than what I remember. So I'm hoping it is it like this 
the MCU at the moment with the cinematic version of Aunt May where she just keeps getting younger and younger and younger. Who knows? Speaking of younger characters, we have Adam Scott who's playing Ben Parker. So that's much younger than any version of the character that we've seen in the films, in the live action films anyway. Um, Is it a flashback? Is it set in a different time? Who knows? We also have Emma Roberts who's playing Mary Parker. So that's another young actor who is playing someone who I perceive to be dead. So in the present day MCU. Has Nick Fury and his most epic secret been the reason that the Thunderbolts are going to be you know, going to come into existence in the MCU? What could possibly be the reason for a, for the government of the MCU wanting to make a superpower team that they can control with villains or anti-heroes that they won't they know won't pull their punches? Could it be that Nick Fury stockpiled a load of superpower DNA, which he then used? Yeah. Him not specifically, but then was used to create a super scroll that was intent on taking over the planet and eradicating all human life. Well, it's definitely a possibility. So let's just say the government would would have to be silly not to put some sort of measure into place to deal with superhuman threats. The Avengers aren't going to follow orders, but the Thunderbolts might to a certain extent if they're forced to. The Harvestler has left one super scroll on Earth and she answers to no one. This makes her dangerous and she's a threat. You know, the government would have to be silly not to do something. It also remains to be seen if the super soul process could be replicated with a new harvest. If Nick could do it, anyone with the enough resources could. They could just pop off to any Avengers level battle and pick up, surely, you know, any DNA that come off anyone. Create a new army, you know. No one would be able to stop them. Surely now, if scroll DNA was added to the mix, they could. Anyone could have harvest powers. The sky's the limit, and shows that Nick Fury's secret keeping is could be a possible reason for the Thunderbolts creation. So I'm going to be talking about a '90s hidden gem called Roswell High. So the thing, the first thing I'd say about I am Roswell High is that I feel it was a bit of an underrated show. I feel it was a bit of a cult classic. Um, the series was based on the Roswell High Young Adult Book series by Melinda Metz. It aired in 1999, just before the millennium, and has all the things you'd expect to see in a 90s teen drama. So, teen angst to the max, lots of adults, mid-twenties, people playing teenagers, which was the archetype of the time. Um, it had drama, mystery, suspense, along with aliens who look like humans. The show had a cool following and lasted for about three seasons, so this was a show that had everything that it needed to be to be a great show, but unfortunately, it was competing with a plethora of shows of the time, like Buffy, which was already a hit, then series like Smallville came along, showing up and bringing a bigger, better, stronger alien. It didn't help. The show revolves around three aliens who crash-landed in the 50s and were grown in pods. They escaped from the pods and were found wandering in the desert, so they all look human, they're all different, but human-like. So, Max and Isabel, they're found together. They're brother and sister, and they're adopted by a family. While Michael, he, he ends up wandering the desert alone and is end, ends up in foster care. So, the series shows the three of them making friends with three humans and trying to find out where they came from, while avoiding the local sheriff, government agencies, and rogue aliens. The show had a plethora of actors who were big in the late 90s, early 2000s. So we've got Shiri Appleby. Yeah, she was Liz. She was probably the main character. She was a human, and the story centers around her and her life yeah, with the aliens. Jason Bear was the love interest. He's Max. He was an alien. He was a king. Guy knows, 
guy who definitely wasn't a teenager in real life, such, like I said, was the 90s, early noughties archetype. Catherine Heigl, who was probably the best known of the teenagers and has probably done the most since, uh, she was Max's sister and fellow alien Isabel. Bren, you've got Brendan Thayer, Majandro Delfino and Nick Weschler. They're all brilliant in it. William Sadler, to me, is probably the best in it. He's a, the veteran actor in the mix. He gives a solid performance as Sheriff Jim Valenti and he's the main father figure of the series. The comedy relief and the saddest part of the whole series comes from Colin Hanks. So... He's great in the series, but I'm not going to say too much, but it's quite sad what happens. Uh, I think this is one of my favourite series of the 90s, early noughties. It's filled with mystery about their origins, where where the government onto them, who knew they were aliens, you know, is that person an alien? It's, it, was, it was one of them. So they all develop pretty cool powers. So we have general powers that they have in it is some sort of telekinesis they can manipulate the molecules and things um, so they can change thing one thing to another thing and they gain you know individual abilities so max can create a shield and he can heal isabel can dream jump so she can go inside people's dreams and it's just a pretty you know a decent look at what alien powers could do so i think the beauty of the series was that it didn't get worse towards the end it finished on a high maybe somewhat prematurely in my eyes but at least it gave us a conclusion the issue was that i feel like the viewers responded more to the drama than the sci-fi storylines which were explored in more in season two so the the ratings dropped towards the end of season two which led them to cancel it after season three uh, the cl- crashing ratings are never good for a series let's put it that way so the first season was all about aliens finding answers to where they came from while navigating new relationships from the kids uh, with the kids from their school who find out about them the government is a huge part of the series which is obviously better received than season two which focused on their alien heritages spaceships and a small amount of teen pregnancy which we don't really want to go into Season 3 focused on their senior year and wrapped up many of the previous storylines as possible. Um, I feel like they could have gone even further, but they just didn't. So, Roswell's been rebooted recently, and it's come to its conclusion already. Um, I'd probably say that the idea is, from what I've watched of the new incarnation, was that it didn't have the magic of the first one. But I haven't watched enough of it to actually give you a, a valid reason why. But valid effort nevertheless. The series is great, and if you get the chance, you should definitely give it a watch. So, I recently watched Don't Worry Darling, and I have to say I thought it was a great film. I came into it with very baited enthusiasm, seeing that Harry Styles was in it and he was one of the main characters, and I didn't believe that he had the acting chops to actually hold anything up. (laughs) This is nothing against Harry Styles. Good singer, some catchy tunes, but for me, singer, not actor. You know what, I'm going to hold my hands up. He, he actually can act, or at least they come across that way in this film. So I had no preconceptions of the film, although I was the one who picked it on that particular film night. The issue I had was I picked it because, for some reason, I must have seen it on social media and thought, okay, we'll give it a go. I had no idea what was going to happen. I had not read the synopsis. I had not read any reviews on it. I just kind of went with it. So my preconceptions were... Just, oh, it's a 50s film, you know, 
So the film opens on a house party, sent the fifties, women dancing, men chatting, chatting, drink, drinking in excess. The decor was how you'd imagine, full on fifties style. So the film takes place in a desert town called Victory, which is cut off from the rest of the world. Every morning, the men all head off into the desert and go to work, never divulging what they do to their women. So the women are in the dark completely, and most of them are quite happy to just go, oh, he goes to work, I, you know, I do my thing, he comes home. So every every day, the women watch their husbands go off, then they send them off, you know, lunchbox in hand, and, you know, they wait for them to come home. So the women clean, cook, go to ballet lessons and drink um, until their men come home, and then they look after them in various ways. So the film, for me, was hard to decipher to begin with, um, leading the main character um, played by Florence Pugh to look like she was having a mental breakdown. One thing I'll say is Florence Pugh, she's brilliant in it, and she gave a great performance, and, you know, if I'm honest, I'd, I'd only seen her as Yelena in the Marvel films and um, Hawkeye series. And if I'm honest, I wasn't sure she you know, had much more in a bag of tricks, but actually she was really good in it. Olivia Wilde um, acted and directed the movie and she did a great job of the directing. So if you ask me in the first hour of the movie, was was, was it a great film? I would have probably been able to give you an answer, and I'd have probably said, mm, "I'm, you know, possibly." <laughs> Do you know what I mean? That's all I'd have been able to say. About an hour in, Harry Styles' character Jack does this weird dance at a party, which threw me off, leading to the question whether it was going to be one of those films that I would have wasted two hours of my life on. And I kind of we 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 stopped the film at that point, and yeah, you know, like we we refueled, we got a drink bar of chocolate you know come back and we both said we're not sure where it's going we can't tell if it was good we can't tell if it was just weird so if if you like i get to this point and decide to jump ship and just leave it completely i can tell you don't it was it was worth the watch well worth the watch and more than satisfied my film needs so chris pine is the villain of the story at face value anyway and gives a solid eerie performance as the man who knows what is truly going on the thing with chris pine for me is that i think he's an actor that plays himself in a lot of films i don't know if it's because he's has such a distinct voice and he doesn't change it for any role and that i kind of feel like sometimes he's hard to cast. I kind of feel like if you're going to cast him, you've got him in mind already. He hasn't come in and wowed you. He he just is that role. So, you know, it's one of them. The story is at its core a psychological thriller, but it's swimming in science fiction pool, especially by the end. And I kind of feel like, you know, the more you watch, the more you start to feel it. So, definitely go into it that's one of the reasons why i'm talking about it if it was just a psychological thriller i probably wouldn't say much about it on this show but because it's sci-fi orientated i'm going with it so olivia wilde has said that the film was inspired by the truman show and the matrix which should give you a little idea of what the film could lead to and what it's probably about so that's without me giving too much away the film comes to her head and brings everything together which it was like it was almost like um Ocean's Eleven, you know, where you see snippets of the film or the snippets of the plan all the way through, but you don't actually get it right until the end where they all put it together. So I feel like if I rewatched it now, it'd be full of little Easter eggs about the plot at whole, and I'd probably go, oh, that, that's why. And I kind of feel like it might be one of them that 
it was a slow burner, especially at the end, because me and the wife, we come to the end of it, and we were like, what did you think? And we both said, I think it was good, but the more you think about it, the more you think, you know what, it really was a good film. So Harry Styles' portrayal of Jack threw me in the beginning. I, I couldn't work out if he was supposed to have an English accent or if he was just really poor an American accent. At the end of the film, everything comes together and the accent is explained. So I kind of feel like I I kind of I put him down too early on, I think. So I apologise, Harry. You, you were much better than what you were, <laughs> what I thought you were anyway. So at the end of the film... Like I said, everything comes together. Um, Florence Pugh gives a great and realistic portrayal of her character. So Alice's fall into psychosis is one of those things that I, I, to begin with, I wasn't sure if she was losing it or if she was remembering stuff or, you know, if something different was going on, if they were testing on them or what. So it's really hard to get a feel of the film right until the end. And I think that's what one of the things that I actually liked about it. So I assumed Olivia Wilde would have a larger role in the film and um, I was a little underwhelmed by her character until the last act where the story comes together and I realised that her performance is actually pretty brilliant in it. Um, I'm not sure if the film was maybe slightly overshadowed by her and um, a certain you know, actor's affair on it but either way, I kind of feel like her, her performance was pretty brilliant. The film as a whole, was brilliant. So, like I said, halfway through the film, I was questioning whether to continue, which isn't a reflection on how good the first hour was. It was just the first hour had maybe a 50s feel, and then she started to lose the plot, and then you got to Harry Styles dancing, and I was like, oh, I'm not sure anymore. But I'm glad that I carried on, and it was a purely random choice that we made to watch it, so I'm glad that I did. So I'd give the film a 9 out of 10, and I would highly recommend that you give it a watch. This week's comic to read before you die is Superman, Batman, Supergirl. I'm getting away from the genre of death of the protagonist, trying to get back on track a little bit. So this is probably my favourite artwork of any comic, of any genre, of any time period. You know, the world lost their great talent when the late, great Michael Turner died, but his artwork lives on. So Michael Turner was was and is my favourite artist of all time. Not just a comic artist, artist. He was a genius. He was discovered at a convention by Mark Silvestri and hired to Top Cow Productions as an artist. He co-created Witchblade. You know, if, you think, if, you've, if you've read any Witchblade, you can, you can see just how brilliant he was he created a book called fathom which was awesome as well um as well as all these titles um and superman and batman he contributed covers to dc comics titles including the flash and identity crisis he's one of them that if i'm looking for back issues and i see a cover with him on i'll pick it up and buy it regardless of whether or not i have that issue so no one draws women like michael turner no one has drawn them since like him. So no one draws heroic characters like he did either. So he chiseled jawlines, sculpted muscles, all the, all the things you want to see. Great facial features which express the emotion of the scene. So unfortunately, sadly, he passed away in 2008 from complications from bone cancer. So we lost a great talent on that day. And, you know, I kind of feel like no comic artist in my eyes has lived up to that since then. So not only did we get, you know, we have the greatest comic art of all time, but we had the the legend, you know, 
Jeff Loeb as a writer. So Jeff Loeb is probably one of the best writers in comics. He's also the go-to guy in a lot of superhero shows from the early noughties up to recent day. He produced over and he produced and written and wrote for shows such as Smallville, Lost, Heroes, Agents of Shield, and was writer for films like Commando and Teen Wolf back in the day. So all of those superhero shows, Smallville especially, he's he's well into the Superman mythos, you know, he knows what's going on. Agents of Shield was brilliant. Lost had its ups and downs, don't get me wrong, but um, I think probably if I rewatched it, it'd probably be a pretty decent show. I've talked about Heroes last week, I'm sure, or the week before, and, you know, I love that as well. Teen Wolf from back in the day is a great, great film with Michael J. Fox. You know, come on though, I don't have to say too much about that. Um, from 2010 to 2019, he was head, and, head of an executive vice president of Marvel Television, and I feel like Marvel Television thrived in that time. Obviously, I think since then, Disney have bought up Marvel and... Um, I think there's been a power shift, obviously, and probably the films have to be taken into consideration a lot more. So I'm not sure what he's up to now, but realistically, he did a great, great thing up until that point. So he appeared on the New York Times bestseller list. He's worked on pretty much every big character in comics. Superman, Batman, The Avengers, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, loads of them. He's also worked with a plethora of TV and film stars. The art and story in this book are brilliant. The story is about Kara Zor-El, Superman's cousin. She crash lands on Earth and staggers from her ship, disorientated. Batman heads to the Gotham River where she landed, um, and Kara ends up getting into trouble and causing mayhem in Gotham. Batman confronts her, but is no match for her. He subdues her with kryptonite and takes her to the cave. Superman figures out she's, a, she's his cousin from Krypton and sets about training her and keeping her safe. The story, in essence, is all about family and what you would do to keep them safe. So, Kara is a wanted girl. She's the first teenage Kryptonian that is relatively, you know, people know about her. People are watching Metropolis, they're watching Superman. You know, they know that she's about. Um, she, She has none of the moral values that Clark gained from his years on Earth. So, she's... She's a blank canvas that someone could mould, basically. So this story is there, yeah, has the world's finest, it has Wonder Woman, has Amazons, it has Dark Side, it has Apocalypse. It, it's just a great story with great artwork. It has almost a journal style to it all the way through where um, Superman is, it, it's almost like he's recording his thoughts, Batman's doing the same. They've got such a, you know, on you know, on paper they don't always look like they agree, but they both have the utmost respect for each other, and I think that's what I love about it. And I feel like this style was used more and more over those years and into the you know the the new Justice League of that time and stuff like that. And actually, they're probably some of my favourite parts of it. It's not the fighting; it's them, you know, their inner feelings, their thoughts about the other characters, them calling each other Clark and Bruce rather than Superman and Batman. It's you know, it's the relationship outside the mask, outside the cape that I actually think, you know, it brings the story together so much better. And I love the way that Batman is sceptical about Kara and he, he he's not sure about 
you know, her intentions. He's trying to keep Clark safe, but it comes across like he's, you know, he's trying to keep the world safe, which he is. But I actually think he's thinking Clark can't be objective about this, so someone has got to be. And we have great dog moments with Crypto. Crypto hates Kara, and you know. I think that's what you know. It it just all it comes together so nicely, especially with the artwork in it. And I I can't keep going on about the artwork. I know, but Michael Turner is a great talent and great artist, and everything about the book is just brilliant. And I think I might have got it before I'd really got into you know Superman and that part of DC because I think before that I was. Um, I was just a bit of everything kind of guy. I'd I'd go through Marvel. We did Civil War. We did all that stuff. I um, I was doing DC. I had some of the Justice League, but then I started reading stuff like that, and I really got into it. And I'm pretty sure that I own every issue of Justice Society, of um, Justice League of that era. I have all the crossovers. The all this leads to um, Amazon's Attack and stuff like that, and infinite crisis and just lots of great books basically so the idea is i definitely give it a read i think another thing that i love about it is that it it's not afraid to pit the 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 trinity of dc against each other so superman and wonder woman they they really clash over what what should happen with Kara, and i kind of feel like you know a lot of the time um the they don't really clash too much. Those two, especially, I feel like have got quite a relationship where they they have been each other's sounding board in the past. I've I've definitely read comics where you know if the, one of them's having a bad day, they and they're looking for someone in the league to talk to. They'd seek each other out and have that chat. Whereas in this, they really look like they want to throw down, and I think it's brilliant. Obviously, Batman can't do anything, and Batman's used to being on the outs with them for his opinions, for stuff he's done. But I, I, I really like the way that Jeff Lowe pitted them against each other slightly, and they have slightly different opinions of how Kara should be raised, should be trained, where she should live. Um, you know... At essence, in the end, Kara, you know, she relates to the Amazons. She can live with the training. She needs people who are on her level to a certain extent. She, you remember, she wasn't born on Earth like Clark was. Clark was, you know, he was raised in Kansas. He is a farm boy. He was used to holding back on his powers. Kara grew up on Krypton in Argo City. And she was used to, you know, probably being just, you know, a, a girl who had to, you know, show some force to get things done. Whereas on Earth, she has the powers of a god. She's solar-powered. She can fire, you know, you know, blast fire from her eyes. She can, you know, freeze things with her breath. She can fly. She can run really quick. You know, she can move really quickly. And that all comes with its own consequences. And realistically, you know, Clark isn't the one to teach her about that because he can he can teach her don't do it rather than Diana who can teach her how to hone that power and I think that that's the issue that they really want Clark wants to protect her while Diana wants her to be able to protect herself and I think you know like I said the essence of the story is all about family and what you're willing to do for them 
and so, some of the things that happen in this, like um, slight spoiler, but Kara ends up on Apocalypse, um, Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, um, uh, Mister Miracle. You know, they they all go to um, Apocalypse to find that. Uh, you know, Clark, you know, Superman, not happy, throws down with Darkseid, and it all comes to a head um, later on when Kara accepts her destiny and puts on the S, and Darkseid comes for her, and, he, you know, it all turns out that Clark ends up throwing down with him, and it's a big battle, destroys the farm, and all comes to a head where he thinks that he's he's killed Kara. Uh, where Darkseid thinks he's killed Kara and that's the end of it whereas actually it was all their plan in the first place and actually um, Kara was teleported away and she's absolutely fine and now she can choose what she wants to do so she's chosen to you know, work with Clark, become Supergirl you know, save people so it's just a brilliant story and it absolutely deserves to be on your list of comics to read before you die Finally today, I have this week's character of the week, which is Supergirl. I've picked Supergirl for a good few reasons, the main being that I feel that the latest portrayal by Sasha Kelly in the Flash movie was pretty decent and deserved more from Gunn in the studio. She deserved a better film to be debuted in rather than the train wreck that she ended up being part of. The character Supergirl has been the name of more than one woman in the com- within DC Comics. Generally speaking, the main girl of steel is Kara Zor-El, Clark's cousin from Krypton. She was created as Superman's female counterpart in 1959 and has been around on and off through each incarnation of the DC Universe. Anyone who knows DC knows that they wreck on the universe once once every so often, mainly through a crisis or whatnot. Kara was uh, created by Otto Binder, um, who had the history of creating super-strong female counterparts to super-strong male male superheroes uh, as he created Mary Marvel who was the counterpart at the time to Captain Marvel and aka Shazam. She has all the powers of Superman and possibly more potential than him which makes him even more dangerous. Her character has had adventures with Superman, solo adventures and even been part of the Legion of Superheroes from the 31st century. DC Comics isn't afraid to show the immensity of their crossover series, especially if you think about Crisis on Infinite Earths, where they killed off important and popular characters, none more so than Kara Zor-El. Kara sacrificed their life to save her cousin and the DC multiverse from destruction, and unfortunately for Kara at the time, after the reboot, DC editors felt that Superman should have been the sole survivor of crypto, of the Kryptonian race, and they literally deleted every aspect of her, so no one remembered her, no one, no one from the main continuity knew that she ever existed, it's only recently that um, people like Donna Troy have started to remember you know, parts of Kara and what she did for the for the DC Universe. Um, the post-crisis version of Supergirl wasn't Kara, nor was it Kryptonian. So we basically had a man-made synthetic protoplasm made by Lex Luthor that was called Matrix. So Matrix has similar powers to Superman. She can fly, she's super strong, but she has telekinesis and she can shapeshift and she can cloak herself and make herself invisible. It, it makes her undetectable to Superman, which is quite a feat in itself. Um, she takes on the looks of what you probably perceive as Kara Zor-El from pre-crisis continuity although 
I'm thinking Lex had some ulterior motives when he created her because they end up having having he ends up having it away with her and they have a relationship, which is weird and creepy because she's man made, but even more so because after she leaves him, she ends up having you know um, adventures with the Teen Titans and being part of the teams, which would suggest that she's got the looks and age of a teen teenager which is a bit weird shame on you lex shame on you the next version of supergirl was linda danvers so the matrix merged with her and created a new supergirl so this version was much more like the pre-crisis version and even used cara's secret identity from back there so cara uh, linda danvers even the series had versions of pre-crisis cara's and um, family and friends uh, this version of Supergirl comes into being when Matrix sacrifices herself to save Linda, merging their bodies, minds and souls. So at this point, they're not really Supergirl at this point. They become an Earthborn angel, so they gain fiery angel wings and the ability to teleport to any place they've been before. The pair eventually split, leaving Linda with a fraction of the power she had before. So she was strong, she could jump so far, but nothing like, a, not, nothing like anything Kryptonian. Until... Uh, the newly fused Matrix and a woman that she she fused with a woman called Twilight, and they heal Linda, increase her super superpowers back up to Kryptonian levels, giving her telekinesis as well. Um, I think this might be one of my favorite versions of the character, seeing the characters was part of the Our Worlds at War storyline, and I think that's where I might have jumped into Superman on you know initially before I ended up going. Uh, getting further into DC Comics. So, the next Supergirl that came along was in the form of a version of Clark and Lois's future daughter called Cyril. Um, she had strength, super sensory powers, but could only jump really far. Uh, she could also fire red solar energy from her hands. So, Cyril didn't last long. As, as it turned out, she wasn't, you know, Lois and Clark's future daughter. She was actually a human girl who'd been altered by Brainiac to appear Kryptonian. Yet another way that Brainiac tried to mess with, you know, Superman throughout the years. Um, she was erased from existence when the timeline realigned. Yet, you know, yet again, more pain to Superman. So, another version of the character was Kara Zor L, not E L, just L. Or Karen Starr, who is an alternate version of the alternate universe's version of Supergirl, who was stranded in the main universe after the crisis. So, um, Karen's been around for a long time, and I can't see her going anywhere. She has all the strength of Supergirl, but she's older, wiser, um, caveat, let's put it that way. So, um, Kara makes her way back into the continuity uh, before Infinite Crisis and takes over from Clark. I've talked about this in the comics to read before you die, uh, but she takes over from Clark when um, after Infinite Crisis when his powers are gone, after him and uh, Super Superman from Earth Two um, fly through um, a red sun to take out um, Superboy Prime. So. Each retcon brings a different iteration of the character, but thankfully most new iterations of the character of Kara Zor-El written for new times. So we have a few versions of Kara Zor-El that ended up being on the telly. So we have the initial one that turned up in Smallville. So it was a decent version. She was around for one full season. You know, it's not the end of the world. She was played by Laura Vandervoort, and you might know her from things like What Bitten, and a few other things. She was in V, the miniseries. The new one, not the old one. Um, 
she likes to play aliens and you know weird things. So you know she was pretty good in it. Um, she lasted for a series, then you know disappeared. Come back in the eighth season, you know for one episode, then disappeared, and then come back in the last series for what two episodes I think, and then disappeared. So I'm not sure if they they, they too like the, some of the producers you know from the editors back in the day thought that um, Clark should be the only Kryptonian about. So. Who knows? Um, another version is the one from Supergirl, the series, who was played by Melissa Benoist, and that went on for six seasons from 2015 to 2021. Um, from what I've watched, I've watched the first couple of seasons of Supergirl, and I actually thought it was pretty good. I think one of the main things that I liked that, that Supergirl series was because it actually brought in a decent Superman in uh, Tyler Hoechlin. Um, she plays a decent Supergirl, don't get me wrong. Um, do I feel like it was the best of the Arrowverse? Maybe not. I kind of feel like they bypassed some of the characters. But in all accounts, it was a decent series. Um, had a you know a good supporting cast. They had John Jones in there. They had Alina Luther, uh, Lexus Sister. They had Toyman's son, Brainiac 5, Monel who um, I think she actually married in real life, to be fair. Um, yeah, you've got quite a few decent characters that came with it. Um, you know, at some point I will get round to watching the rest of the series, don't get me wrong, but it's not on top of my list. Um, I think what we can say about Cara Zorrell is that she keeps getting wrote into different storylines and she's basically going to be part of the, you know, part of DC until it probably dies at some point uh, probably thanks to James Gunn but we'll see I'm Matt and this has been the Glass by Day Geek by Night podcast thanks for listening